Hey, I'm Casey Carthew, director of Polaris, and you are listening to Contra Zoom. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. The Fantasia Festival is still ongoing at the time of this recording, but we have conducted a few interviews with some directors of films that are playing at the festival, and we want to share them with you before our final wrap-out episode will come out. Now, the two of us have both written some reviews, and like I said, we're going to do a, a full wrap-out of, of what we ended up seeing. Lots of great stuff so far, because Fantasia is always fantastic. But we had the opportunity to talk to two different directors, one where it was the two of us together interviewed someone, and then one, just you interviewed the director. And I'm very excited to share these interviews. But before we get into them, how are you uh, enjoying your Fantasia so far, Rachel? It's been good. I wish I could have gone to Montreal. Um, although I think I did see some people who are coming back from it who have COVID. Oh, so no. maybe, yeah, so maybe it's a good thing I didn't go. Um, but I, I really, I wanted to go cause one, it's just in Montreal, so it's not too far away. Um, and I really like Montreal as a city, which we've talked about on the show kind of randomly mm-hmm. that we both really enjoy Montreal. Um, and then the big reason would have been John Woo was in attendance yeah. and that's incredible. And yeah, I, it just kind of passed my mind that I didn't really realize he was there until I saw people's pictures on that Friday. It was, um, it wasn't their opening night film, but it was like the Friday, the opening Friday mm-hmm. that they had him there and they gave him a lifetime achievement award. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I really missed out. I would have loved to have met him, but yeah, another time, another time, John Woo, another time. It, I feel like Fantasia is probably one of the most fun festivals to go to because like at TIFF you have like the the Midnight Madness section and I know I never went to them but I know they're a lot of fun and this is basically like an entire festival of just the Midnight Madness selections and I feel like being in a crowd watching some of these movies probably makes it a whole lot more fun than it is just watching them on your own at home on your laptop or whatever. Uh, so it's a, it's a shame that we're not actually there in person because they do bring in some pretty spectacular guests like John Woo. Uh, and I believe they, they showed a couple of his films. They also had Kirla Janess who directed one of our favorite documentaries mm-hmm. from last year, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched come in and because they were reissuing one of her books, House of Psychotic Women, and they were showing, I think, three movies that she talks about in the book. And so I think she was there for one of the screenings and gave like a bit of a lecture for that. They're also doing a bit of a retrospective on Michelle Yeoh and they were showing one of her earlier movies. So yeah, it would have been a ton of fun to be able to go there in person. Yeah, and I think it's one of those film festivals that, like you said, like it's it's midnight madness the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like it's got such a great respect in the industry as well. Like I know Guillermo del Toro, uh, David Cronenberg, they all speak so highly James of Gunn. the festival. James Gunn, yeah, they all love it, and 
it's like you can see from the type of filmmaker who really enjoys this festival, then like that's the kind of crowd they're looking for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's my second year doing it. How many is this your third? Yeah, fourth? it was it was my yeah. second year as well. It's funny your it second just year as well was never really on my radar before. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it was in Montreal and I just didn't think about it. And I feel like before the pandemic, because festivals weren't really doing any sort of an online option, it was just you didn't really think about it. Like you'd think about, you know, Cannes or New York or Sundance or whatever, because it would be in the news, but you wouldn't really think about the other festivals and be like, Oh, well, you know, I'll never get a chance to go to it unless I like physically go out there. So why am I going to care about it? But like just realizing just how fantastic of a festival it is. And the fact that we were able to do it remotely really made all the difference in the world. I just want to say on that note, so TIFF, approvals went out recently for press and there was a lot of people talking about how it was a bit unfair or not unfair but I suppose like a step backwards that they're not doing a a virtual component anymore for press and I saw a tweet from uh her name is Sarah Clements she also writes for Exclaim which is how I know I don't I don't actually know her like we've never met um but she's a writer in Edmonton and she writes for a lot of great different um uh, a number of different publications and she's a fantastic writer i really like reading her stuff um but she tweeted i think must have been a couple days ago about how fantasia is the one festival that has consistently done a virtual component for press which is why her being out in edmonton she's been able to cover this festival for like four or five years or something like that um and she's really like a lot of her writing is focused on horror genre as well um, so obviously Fantasia being a really big festival for that genre. Um, I, I just thought it was really interesting to kind of see people's opinions on that, because obviously for me personally with TIFF and for you previously, um, we're in Toronto. It's like it's not a huge deal for us because it is a massive film festival, but we're, it's our city. So it's not as big a deal. But to hear someone like Sarah be like, actually, Fantasia is great because they've always done virtual. I think that that's excellent from on their part as a festival. Yeah, it's super frustrating. Speaking of tiff this was the first time i've gotten a full approval to cover it and i can't go so <laughs> yay thank you tiff well you know hoping it's, uh... Uh, those uh, pr connections that we have uh, come in handy. it's a shame i mean that's that's a conversation for another day but i just thought it was interesting you mentioned that about the festival and how fantasia is still doing virtual but actually they were doing virtual even before um covid and i think that's great because there's not yeah yeah, like not everybody's able to travel to montreal um and it's nothing to do with covid it's everything to do with finances and um ability like just uh, you know physical ability as well so it's nice that there's some festivals out there who who um have that in mind and just kind of want as many different writers specifically who who like you know horror sci-fi action you know those guys to be able to to watch films and write about them I'm not going to name any other festival names, but like there's some festivals where I'll be covering it or applying or just looking at it and just being like, but your lineup is only so, so whatever. (laughs) I guess I'll do it. Whereas with Fantasia, I probably put it up there with as far as accessible festivals to me you know like it's it's easy to be going like yeah i'd love to cover can like they get like yeah. <laughs> world premieres in the world like it's crazy but it's 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 very inaccessible for someone like me tiff number one because like 
It is one of the top, you know, three to five festivals in the world, however you want to rank it. They get some fantastic stuff. It's it's always like a no-brainer. Like, you got to apply for it. Fantasia, I think, is almost right up there because of the quality of the films and the variety of films is so excellent that, like, it is, it is now, like, other than, like, TIFF, it is the number one festival I need to apply for every single year to cover. I really like the lineup on it. And, you know, like, I've seen some movies this year like one there's two in particular that really stand out in my mind i can't wait to talk about them um for our next episode uh but yeah there there's some really really great movies and they're interesting too i think that's kind of the cool thing about it is they are just a little bit different and and they're also really good about getting movies from all over the world too like they're not just um american films there's a lot of canadian movies too which is excellent and a lot of movies from quebec as well obviously being based out of montreal um so it's nice like to see a bit more like home 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 variety as well Mm -hmm. absolutely well let's uh let's get into the first interview the first one was one that we conducted together and i believe this is the second time now that we've done an interview together the last time was also during fantasia last year which was a ton of fun and it was with Casey Carthu, who is the director of the opening night film that played at fantasia this year named polaris it is a Really fun and exciting dystopian sci-fi quasi-horror action-y type of movie that's that's very interesting. It doesn't have traditional dialogue. They they sort of speak their own languages and it's not subtitled, so it's so it's interesting where you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of any character where you're like, yes, I don't understand someone that doesn't speak the same language as me. Of course there's there won't be subtitles in real life. So it's really interesting. And and Casey was so wonderful it's it's almost a shame we only had her for about 20 minutes and (laughs) you know it's a little behind the scenes stuff when you're preparing for an interview you go okay so you got 15 20 minutes okay how many questions do you think i can ask in that time just in case you know you get a one word answer or whatever (laughs) reason sometimes you'll ask a question and the and and the subject will sort of transition into another question you're planning on asking already. So you don't want to repeat a question because you'll get the same answer twice. So you give yourself a couple extra questions to be like, okay, just just as a buffer, you know. And if we're running out of time, you can cut them out. Whatever. Casey was giving us such amazing answers. I feel like we had to cut half of our question short. <laughs> yeah, but I probably even more than that to be honest. But I think it's great. Like, I it's nice that she's so passionate about what she does and her film and she should be it's a great movie like both you and i really enjoyed it and mm-hmm. um yeah it's like she it, it's i i prefer when they have a lot to talk about versus the one two word answers because those are kind of awkward so it's nice when they're when they're into not just their own film but like into the the process of marketing their movie like so so they like having a conversation about it and i mean i think that also maybe to pat ourselves on the back a little bit too it's just like you know we give questions that hopefully they find interesting um and will elicit like a um a more complete response than a yes or no answer there once I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. There is there's nothing more <laughs> satisfying when you're conducting an interview and 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 the subject goes, "Oh, oh, I haven't thought about that" or something like, "Oh, I haven't been mm-hmm. asked that before." And you know they've been kind of waiting to kind of talk about that aspect and they haven't got to the chance. And I feel like the both of us are are good at uh, coming up with unique questions that are their 
pertinent to what we want the interview to be, but also unique and different enough that they probably haven't answered this a million times. Like you hate asking the question of, oh, what's it like working with so-and-so star? Yeah, I think it's nice that we're, we're, I think it's nice that we're not doing, I mean, we're far from this, but like we're not (laughs) in the junket of doing those like two minute tv interviews you know like those see i mean as glamorous as they might look because like oh you got to meet tom cruise you got to meet you know christian bale and all that but truly you get like two minutes Mm -hmm. sometimes like two three minutes or something like that and and the questions that you're asking are meant to be very surface level because they can't really talk to you for very long and and they're meant to be entertaining as well right so i think that it's kind of nice thing about doing either podcast or print is you get a little bit more time and so therefore you're able to ask a few more interesting questions. But I think that like every, anybody who does this, like anyone who who likes to interview people for about any topic, like it's always such a nice thing when, when people say like, Oh, I haven't, I've never heard that. Like I've never been asked that before. Like that, mm-hmm. that's a great one. I know Matthew Simpson over at awesome Friday. That's something he really prides himself on too. Like I've heard a number of his interviews now and he's always like, yeah, I hope like he, he really, you could tell like he, he's really hoping that, he says he asks a question that they haven't heard before. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, and it's something more interviews should probably pride themselves on doing. Yeah. But without further ado, let's, let's listen to our interview with Casey Carthu, the director of Polaris. I now want to welcome onto the show Casey Carthu. Casey is the writer, director, and producer of the new Canadian sci-fi action movie Polaris. Polaris tells the story of Sumi, a young girl who gets separated from her mother, an actual polar bear in northern Canada, and gets kidnapped by a Mad Max-style gang where she must escape and reunite with her mother. Polaris is the opening night film at this year's Fantasia Festival, a huge honor. Welcome, Casey. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, I'm doing great. I, as you say, it's a huge honor to open Fantasia Film Festival, and rightly so. I'm, I'm only going to feel great about this. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your journey from, I know this started off as a short film, The Fish Out of Water, which I saw this morning. It's amazing, by the way. I was oh, good. caught off guard by it. I was glad I could find it on Vimeo. Um, but going from the short film in 2015 and seven years later, you're opening Fantasia. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah, it was um, Fish Out of Water. Uh, so I'm from the Northwest Territories, and uh, there's a, a film lab slash festival called the Den North Film Festival. And it's, it's a structure where they give you, you know, a few kind of ingredients, things you need to incorporate into a short film, you know, a certain image, a line of dialogue, this kind of thing. And then you have um, you don't have 24 hours. You have, you have, a, I think, a couple of months. So it's, it's a sort of a longer process. And um, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. Uh, I, I am a filmmaker, but, you know, I thought, you know, I've, I'm going to try this experimental thing. It seems really cool. And anytime you get an opportunity to make a film, why not? Right. So I made this film um, and it got into Fantasia. And because, and I really attribute it to Fantasia. 
I think because of that spotlight, and this is this was not an opening short film or something like that. It was just a, you know, not just but a short film. Um, but it went to play the Global Film Festival circuit for two years, like a really uh-huh. good chunk of time and met a lot of amazing people and got a lot of great feedback from fans. And coming from the Northwest Territories, you know, it's I don't want to make it sound like an isolated part of the world. You don't have any connection to anyone. But a little bit, there's some truth in that. And so it's really a privilege, I think, to connect with fans and, and genre fans are so um, engaged and cool. And I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, like, why not do the feature version of this? And I thought about it. I thought, okay, I don't have an immediate sort of impulse to, to do this. But um, the there were elements in that short film that really stuck with me. I love the color palette. I love mm-hmm. the north. Um, I love some of the themes and some of the twists in the characters. And that film, uh, while there was there was a fictional language in that film as well, and although it's primarily nonverbal, and I love that kind of sentiment. And so I took a lot of these elements into consideration, and um, I I got tracked. I was making another film, so the seven years you know allows for a whole other my first feature film to get made, and then. You know, I think after that film kind of was made and went out into the world, I thought, well, what do I want to do next? And there's a real impulse for this feature, Polaris, to come forward. And I really took a very intuitive approach to writing the script. I really kind of asked the world, like, what should this film be? You know, including all of these elements that are intriguing to me that I just mentioned. and. I basically wrote the script like within a, a couple of days. Like it was really, really quick. But I should qualify the the first script was fifteen pages. So <laughs> it was very it is a non verbal film. So, you know, the the absence of dialogue definitely allows you to have a shorter page count, but it was definitely shorter. And um and then I workshopped that script uh, a little bit with um uh, a consultant who's pretty amazing, talented filmmaker herself, and then you know ultimately ended up with the with the finished script, which was about fifty pages. So still not you know a hundred or hundred twenty page script, um, but amazingly, people just loved it. We had a lot of uh, people come on board kind of quickly, and um, you know we pitched the film at the Frontier Market, which is a market that is associated with the Fantasia Film Festival. And basically at that market met all the people who were going to be part of the film in terms of the funders, our U.S. sales agent, our Canadian distributor, our um, Canadian co-producing partners. So it came together relatively quickly. Our, that was in 2019. Sorry, I wrote the script in 2019. We were going to go to camera in 2020, and then COVID happened, and and we went to camera last year. So, I mean, I think it's a really odd script, but it also oddly came together really quickly. I think you know my first film took many many years to to create and to get financed. So this is um, definitely a, an accelerated experience. 
Mm-hmm. Of course. Now, I sort of want to segue there. You're talking about the writing and the script and, and the dialogue and all that sort of stuff. The movie is described as using nonverbal communication. Well, watching the movie, I feel the best way to sort of describe it is everyone in the year 2144 speaks wildly different languages. And as such, the other characters can't really understand each other from a communication standpoint. When writing the screenplay, did you script out the actual dialogue and then get the actors to translate in their own language? Or, or how would, did that process work? Yeah, I mean, just to back up a little bit, the film is told through the perspective of the main character, Sumi, who is a 10-year-old girl. She's raised by a polar bear. So she doesn't know a human language. And because the film is shown from her perspective, I also didn't want the audience to somehow have excellent understanding of the specific words because I wanted us to live in sort of her world. Um, But... That said, as you say, it's a nonverbal film. It's not a, like, let's, you know, drink wine, smoke cigarettes, you know, wax on philosophically. It's, there's not a lot of talking. And when there is some talking, it's fictional. Um, I had always imagined a process whereby as the director, I would work with um, the actors to co-create a language. And in Fish Out of Water, the short film, I had done that process with the lead actor and, and we really took a sort of an improvisational approach. We really found like where in our body we thought the sounds would come from and they were lower, like lower, more grounded. Um, the Morads, uh, they're named after marauders, this uh, group of women and they, they're really, you know, survival of the fittest. They don't talk a lot. They're busy. They're working. And so there's a, a real abruptness and a, and a earthiness um, to their speech. And so my intention, as I say, was always to work with the actors to, to do this and to use improvisational kind of techniques. Um, and we sort of ended up doing this. But because of COVID, uh, we all kind of had to quarantine for two weeks prior to day one of filming. And that was really challenging. So we we did a sort of a hybrid approach. I reached out to a very specific cast member who has a background in improv. And I asked her if she would workshop with me and one of our um, crew who has, who's an actor herself. And the three of us sort of would workshop this language so that we could kind of get the ball rolling. And then we did that and we created a few words and a, a sort of a little bit of a, a structure. And then we did Zoom workshops basically with the rest of the cast. And I really invited each actor to kind of come up with their own words that they would say, all sort of within that range, those tones, you know. So if somebody said, oh, I think my character would say, da 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 da, it's like, no, no, your character would not ever say that. But if it was like, yes, yes, maybe. And and it's important because I think for an actor, uh, especially most actors are used to working with dialogue. And it's really important that an actor feels like ownership of the, the language. So to create a language, they need to really take ownership of it. And, you know, I had thought, oh, and I studied linguistics and I actually worked with um, a linguist to create a language. But to me, that didn't feel really organic, especially when you're bringing actors together kind of last minute because we didn't know if the film was going to camera or not to sort of say, here's this language. 
uh, yet to learn. I really wanted them to sort of learn the tones, learn the the feeling of it, and where in their bodies the sounds would come from, so that they could then deliver them as though, oh yeah, I know this language, I know this, and you know, for I think it works. I mean, you're you're the audience, so you can decide if it works mm-hmm. or not. But as a as a director, I thought it worked well, and we have um, the Morads have a language. There's a Morad who is uh, played by an amazing actor, Muriel Dutil, who's from Montreal. And she's kind of an exception to the Morad. She's sort of a, a, a guiding character who's a little bit of an outsider, but has, has a vital role to play in their world. So she has a, a sort of a more nuanced language, and she has probably the most dialogue of any character. And then there's a character named Frozen Girl, who clearly is not from this world. Her, you see it right away from, you know, the way she looks, her appearance, her hair, her clothing, her sentiments. Um, and she needed to have her own language to really sort of underscore that she is not from the Morad territory. And then Sumi herself, the, the lead character, she has a kind of a grunty, language and she really has one major word it's the word for mother and I, I you know that was uh a, an offering I gave to the actor to say you know what would your what what's what's Sumi's version of mom you know mm-hmm. and uh she came up with mua so mm-hmm. if you hear mua in the film that's mom yeah Jumping off that actually about the improv and, and working with your actors to create. So the character of Sumi, the actress who plays Aviva Lee, I was so impressed with her physicality. She's amazing. And then I looked up her bio and of course she's super into like all kinds of martial arts and MMA and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and things like that. So when you talk about building a character, building part of your film with the actors and, and kind of making it collaborative, was that was the physicality of Sumi? Did that come from Viva, or were you specifically looking for an actress who could do all those things? I would say both. Uh, it was a huge part of the casting process. I I was really looking for an actor who is very comfortable in their body, mm-hmm. both and in improvisation. And we had many auditions. We had many. We had like hundreds and hundreds of kids audition, and there's so many amazingly talented people. It's such a privilege. Viva really stood out and she really connected her body. She feels mm-hmm. she feels it. And you can see in all of the auditions, it's not the same thing over and over again. She really is, you know, has these impulses and she goes with it. And, you know, for, for me, and there's so many different ways to cast a film. And I don't know that I will always cast a film the same way. But for this film, I really was looking for somebody who had that physicality, who who was excited by it and curious about it. And, you know, we gave um, the actors uh, sort of film footage of polar bears and different types of scenarios and fights, but also in kind of just like playful situations. So really also looking for somebody with a range. And for myself, you know, Viva was um, 11 when we shot the film. And I'm really looking, and it's a, a big responsibility for an actor to, to carry a film, and not just carry the film, but she, she carries 90 plus percent of the film, um, and and without dialogue, so it's a big responsibility. And for myself as a director, I always feel like you know you can 
cast people, however, however, which way. But for me, and I, I said this to all the actors and, and Viva in particular, like once you're in this role, you own it. You like, you have to, you have to like create Sumi because I, you know, I, I happen to be the writer, also the director, but like you, you're now Sumi. Like that's your responsibility to, to get into her skin. And I'm casting you because I know you can do it. And I don't know everything you're going to do, but I know you're going to do something amazing with this role. So it's really um, the pleasure of working with actors who really do want to, you know, get a role and kind of explore it and take it on. And um, I'm so glad you, uh, you love Diva in the role. She's, she's amazing. And, and she's just so such great, a joy yeah. to work with. Yeah, no, she's, uh, she's really, really brilliant. And th- that's actually one of the things I'm most excited about. She's here in Montreal. She's never seen the film. Oh, wow. And, oh, that's going to be amazing. And I just, you know, I just hope, I hope she loves it, but I also hope she, um, and, and the other cast too. It's a really fantastic, um, cast, but you know, it's, it's a lot of work to make a film and the glamorous parts of the film are literally like what tonight is. So I really want everybody to like feel some love from the audience and, and just feel proud of their own work because, you know, as an actor, you do your, you do your thing and you walk away and you just probably hope that it works, you know? Yeah. Uh, a key to a great science fiction film usually needs to have some sort of epic special effects. Your film is more grounded in reality, so there's no flying spaceships or things like that. But I want to compliment the sound department for their phenomenal work. The snowmobiles uh, sound like a mix between like a small plane and a speeder bike, something from Star Wars. And then the the transport vessel for Frozen Girl, when it's open, it sounds like a an airtight cryogenic capsule of some sort being open. What were your requests to make Polaris feel like a futuristic movie? Yeah, well, say, I'm so glad you're asking about sound because sound is so important to this. It's important to any film, but in this film in particular, this is the kind of film where I would love for audiences to wonder, like, who who did the sound? Exactly what you're asking, because normally the sort of proof of a great sound designer is you don't even notice, mm-hmm. you know? But in uh, Polaris, you, you for sure will notice. And um, I consulted sound designers right from the beginning because a lot of the sounds needed to be in the script uh, so that you, you feel the sound. And, and we have trees that talk and things like that. So you need to give them the space for it. And, you know, in our film, we didn't have the budget to go back and do reshoots. So really have to get everything on the day and you have to think about the sounds and um, our sound designer is a gentleman named Christian Rive, who's from Montreal, and um, he's such a pleasure to work with. And, and the whole, similar to what I was just saying about Viva, you know, you, you talk about the process and what you want. And, and in the case with the sound, really, um, I wanted the Morad, uh, anyone who will see the film, the bad gals, uh, they, they have, uh, in terms of the wardrobe, it's sort of upcycled metal bits and I wanted them to have and I thought you know they would use that in their in their communication it would have a real um kind of low bass sound to it and then they'd have the metal but it's like rusty metal it's it's nothing pristine and they would have that sound design as part of them whereas Sumi would be more sort of earthy and organic and Frozen Girls a little more high-pitched and just talk really in a very sort of 
philosophical way about the sound design. And then again, like Viva taking ownership of the role of Sumi, Christian, his team really took ownership of that sound design. So, you know, they really do the work of, of finding those snowmobiles from the 70s that, you know, just sound so loud and mm-hmm. disruptive. And then they add add all the layers to it so that, um, you know, you really, you know, it's like, you know, this is kind of a different world and you know, it's, you know, maybe not good what's happening and all that stuff. But yeah, that's a, a, a true credit to their, their team. They were super great to work with. Uh, I think we have time for maybe one more question here. So you're, Last movie, the or your first movie, really, uh, The Sun at Midnight. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, both. Um, there was a lot of connection. You draw a lot of connections between humans and nature, and you use that kind of connection to bridge grief and to help Leah, you know, work through her grief of, of her mother passing. And in Polaris, you kind of see that connection of more of, you know, a young girl with one, obviously survival, but two, um, a connection with the earth in the way that that's kind of where she's from and that's how she was raised because she was raised in effect by nature. So I was wondering for yourself, you know, you, you're from uh, Northwest Territories, as you said, uh, what's your own connection to nature then? Because that's obviously a through line that you have throughout most of your work. Yeah, I mean, I I have lived in a lot of countries. My family moved around a lot growing up and I have two brothers. So we sort of were like a little family band wherever we moved and we we lived in the Middle East we lived in uh, different countries uh, or I should say lived you know as though we were there for years and years but spent a lot of time in India in uh, different countries in Africa and then in Canada and it's it's just like whether you're in the desert or you're by water or you're near a mountain or wherever you are I always as a kid had my brothers to kind of rely on for social contact, but I always found solace in nature. I always found that to be like my grounding place. And it, it doesn't matter what nature is for you. Again, is it, is it the desert? Is it a mountain? Is it the subarctic? You know, it could be so many different places. And I think it's um, been a real gift of my upbringing to have had the privilege. I didn't always know that it was a privilege growing up to have so much access to nature, to, to be able to go on huge long canoe trips, to be able to go hiking in all these places. And I just, I always felt a connection to, to nature, particularly to trees and to animals. And um, just, I'm really comfortable outdoors. Um and whether you have that kind of wilderness experience or you live in a city and you can go to a park or you just have a plant in your apartment or whatever it is, I just think that it's so important to engage with nature. There's such an opportunity there to learn about yourself through that connection. And, you know, maybe it's similar uh, for anyone who has a cat or a dog or, you know, you, you communicate or another pet, you know, you communicate a little intuitively and, and it requires a different way of thinking because, because of the language barrier. So, you know, I know with my dog, I'm always like, hmm, like I make a lot of sounds and, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's, yeah, as I say, I just have always felt like it's an important relationship for, um, for individuals to discover it's a way, uh, you know, way to get to know yourself and also to all, like, that's what we live in. So it's even if you're in a cement kind of urban jungle, 
there's still nature around and there's always the opportunity to uh, seek that out for comfort and for self-discovery. And, and I, I really want people to take away this kind of affirmation of how amazing uh, you know, our world is and, and to, to sort of be curious and to explore those connections, however big or small they might be. I'm currently in the process of killing a succulent, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm really struggling with this plant it's right now. <laughs> yeah. No, hey, I get it. It's, uh, I, I, it's like I have a wilderness garden, the one that, <laughs> the one that does it all on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many ways to relate, but, you know, I just, I, I think it's uh, such a gift to, to be able to, you know, connect, connect and, and use a different, probably part of your heart, soul, mind, body. I, I don't know what it will be for everybody, but, um, you know, there to discover. For sure. Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's probably a little premature, but do you know what the future holds for Polaris? Will there be additional festival screenings or can people look for to maybe come to theaters or streaming in the future? Yeah, we're really fortunate um, that we have a Canadian distributor on board. We've, we've uh, Film Option, they've been on board from the beginning and a big supporter and there will definitely be a theatrical release in Canada. I don't know when, I would guess in 2023. Um, we also have a tremendously awesome, supportive U.S. sales agent, and I know they're looking for distribution. Um, we literally just finished the film, I feel like a month ago, <laughs> so we sent it out for, um, you know, for submissions to, to other festivals. And so we're still waiting to hear back. Um, we've been really fortunate in that we um, have already had some acceptances from some pretty great festivals. And, you know, we it's it's like we don't know what will happen. But um, so far, it seems like there's been a real interest in the film. And, and that's pretty, uh, pretty fantastic because you don't know when you make a film. You don't know. Mm-hmm. People well, that's, will like it. that's amazing. I'm so happy that more people are going to get a chance to see it. It's a phenomenal film. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today, Casey. Thank you both so very much. And thanks to your listeners as well. Like I said, it was so much fun getting to talk to Casey. And it's, it's funny where, you know, I mentioned just before about how we had to cut our questions in half. And, you know, your your first question was basically just like, <laughs> how are you doing? And, and that took up like half the the answer, <laughs> the time period allotted. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would just be like a really easy kind of first question just to you, get her comfortable. And the, the starter oh, off. Such yeah. a softball. Yeah, such a <laughs> It was just like, a, how's it going? You enjoying the film festival? And like, clearly she was really enjoying it. So I think that's awesome, though. Like, I love I love that kind of enthusiasm where, yes, she is very much so enjoying the process and, and having her film not, I mean, it's not just the film was shown at Fantasia, it opened Fantasia and Mm -hmm. that's a really big honor. So um, yeah, so I, I I love it. And I have a feeling once we, uh, once we do our, you know, year end Canadian film awards and look at that sort of stuff, this is probably one that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a few Canadian movies that I've seen so far that I think will. I mean, we always know like the pool is a lot smaller, right? Like there's not as many Canadian movies to pick from. But I mean, Polaris is it's such an interesting movie. And I think that one of the great things about this one is um, it's not just that there's a small pool of Canadian films to choose from, but like 
this is one that probably would have gotten overlooked, right? Like if it was in the States or something like that, like yeah. it just would have absolutely fallen under the radar. So it's nice that we do have a bit of a smaller film industry and so that we are able to pinpoint these, these types of movies a little bit easier. Yeah, I really hope uh, more people are able to check this out because she said it was going to be playing at different film festivals and things like that, and they're looking at a theatrical release. So hopefully more people are able to see this. Now, transitioning, you did an interview by yourself, if you want to kind of set this up a little bit. Sure. I spoke with Berkeley Brady, who's the director of a film uh, called Dark Nature, obviously showing at uh, Fantasia as well. So Dark Nature is about um, two women, or sorry, I should say it's about one woman, really, um, who her name is Joy, and she's played by Hannah Emily Anderson. Um, she's going through a very abusive relationship. She is hopefully leaving behind an abusive husband, um, but she is overcome with the trauma and the grief uh, from it. And her best friend, Carmen, played by Madison Walsh, um, encourages her to go on a outdoorsy nature group therapy kind of alter alternate therapy to you know seeing a psychiatrist or, or a therapist or a, a psychologist and the two of them along with some other women they they go on this trip and each of the women that are there kind of have their own different issues and the, their own reasons that they're participating in the in the retreat eventually it, it devolves into a kind of a creature feature, if I can say that, like a bit of a monster movie where there is something lurking in the woods. Um, and it was filmed out in Banff in, uh, in, or in the, like the Rockies, I should say Banff, it's probably out in the Rockies um, in Alberta. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie in that sense. Like it looks amazing. Um, the, the narrative topic is it's very heavy, obviously. Like we're talking about women who are, trying to overcome different battles, whatever they may be, and uh, using and also look at friendship and a look at um, just that kind of grief process. So I had a really great chat with Berkeley. It was really awesome. Um, she's so like, she just had a baby very recently. So her, her boy was actually in the interview at the very beginning, <laughs> um, but was, was a little bit fussy. And so uh, someone helped her out and, and took the kid, but um, not took it for permanently just for the interview and yeah and like we we had a really really great chat Berkeley um, part of her heritage she's she's part Métis and she had some really really awesome things to talk about that uh, yeah she's she's she was a really really great chat like it was really easy to talk with her and um, her film is is interesting like uh, I actually I mentioned Sarah Clements at the beginning of the at the top of the, uh, uh, the the episode, she actually wrote a really great review um, on Dark Nature, so I know it connected with her quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so it, it's with Berkeley Brady. It's Dark Nature. It's an interesting film. Definitely go check it out if it sounds interesting at all to you. Um, but yeah, I had a great time with chatting with her. Nice. Yeah, this is one that caught my eye too, and I'm hoping to catch up with before the festival is over. But yeah, let's listen to this interview. Just follow my lead. I don't think I want to do this. I think that's the point, Joy. Let's go. Come on. Ooh. 
you had the world premiere yesterday. How did yeah. it go? Congratulations, by the way. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Just trying to savor the moment after, you know, it's so hard to get there. So now to be at this time where you get to just share it with people and talk about it. And it just feels like I really want to savor it. How was it watching it in a room full of strangers for like the first time? It's really hot. Raining <laughs> 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 all day. So it was like so humid and hot. It was like, Ooh. <laughs> just me or the heating up in here um no it was really amazing I think um it's really cool especially just to see the reactions you know to see like where the laughs are where the jumps are you know where someone yawns like the, all the things it's an insanely traumatic movie dark nature is it is very dark uh, it's true to its title but you you put it in you know one of the most beautiful settings but I can imagine it was a, a difficult shoot as well it was a place like having grown up in that area that I've spent so much time in and as a just camera you know I love photography and I've done some shooting myself I was just so excited to shoot something there I think too sometimes the scariest moments I've had in the forest or when you know something could be there like you're like oh there's been a cougar sighting or you know there's bears or humans like there and then being in a silent area and then just hearing like when you just hear the, the like branch crack in the distance and then it's like adrenaline like the hit of just the survival um and I really tried to do that with the scene with Dr. Dunley just that and normally it's a squirrel or a branch has fallen normally it's nothing but in this case obviously it was not nothing <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing you know in your mind it could be anything like that that's yeah. kind of the fear that we had when your kids of things that go bump in the night you just it could be anything and so so the the Rockies are like a perfect spot for that because there are lots of twigs and branches <laughs> to, to make that noise. yes yes um, but what were some of the challenges filming out there like it, I mean you guys got right into like the depths of, of forest and things so it wasn't just like a little bit on the outskirts you guys got right in there so that that mm-hmm. must have been Mm-hmm. That must have had its own set of challenges as well. Mm-hmm. I always think it's sort of like you pay to play. <laughs> and so that scene when they're walking in, that's in the clip from uh, in the canyon, that was about an hour drive from the city, then about a 20 minute hike from Circus, okay. from where the trailers were, and then 10 minutes sort of through that canyon. So obviously that just really shortened our shooting days to a certain extent. Um, then you have concerns like, or if there's any hikers hiking above that canyon, they could kick off a rock. So we had to have people up there sort of stopping people from walking by. Um, yeah. And then um, we had some assistance for any, like some of the actors just to help um, move. But there are things like Helen Belay, who plays Tara, the for her character, we got her these sort of like converse, but they had some platform on them. So they look totally like what Tara would wear. But we found for Helen um, on that terrain, so uneven that um, it was really hard, hard on her ankles. So we had to like, luckily had an amazing costume designer who had tensor tape and stuff. So they would like tape her ankles for support. And then, yeah. So things like that, that you're, you're just like, Oh, we're dealing with just a different level of, of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have Wi-Fi or self service out there. So that meant the producers, um, you know, just had to like dry, like leave set to, to do all the other producing that they need to do throughout the day. We had uh, lost a focus pull one day in the water for the water scenes pretty early in the day, just uh, got dropped in the water. 
And we had major, at that time, there was so much shooting in Alberta, major crew shortages and major equipment shortages. So it wasn't like we could just like someone rent a town and get a new focus call. It's like, there are none. There's just, everything is booked in the city. Like we had to buy a, an old van for, for like, uh, it was like a deli van or something for moving stuff. Cause all the, all the, the trucks that would normally carry equipment were like totally booked. Wow. Yeah. And on that same location, like they were shooting Predator and they were shooting um, Joe Pickett around there. Oh, okay. So yeah. So with Predator, I'd like drive down the long road into it when they were shooting, when we were on location shots and it would be like a kilometer of trailers. I was like, that's where the trailers are. <laughs> like, do they need every single one? Like, can't they like, come for us? But um, so those kind of things were just, I think my producer, Mike, he said it was by far the most challenging. Like, he's like, I dealt with things I've never even come across in films before, like in producing. Great just experience, produce. though, isn't it? Like a really great experience to just like jump into the the deep end, both feet into yeah. the deep end, right? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully for the actors that gave them you know, I really wanted, we had the option to shoot in some really beautiful parks in the city. There's a really great provincial park in Calgary that could have been a stand-in. Um, but I think in the distance, you would hear some things and we could get like subway or things like that. And I think you can get rid of that in the sound, but I really wanted for the actors, for them to feel that awe and that sort of uh, vulnerability out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A completely immersive experience then. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, your movie, it deals a lot with PTSD, trauma, grief, those things. But for me, the most interesting theme that I took out of it was you look at friendship in a very interesting way that you don't typically see in movies. And especially in 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 movies with a female cast, like for better or for worse, it's just not <laughs> the way that we're portrayed. Um, but, you know, the one line in particular, and I wrote it down because I just thought it was so interesting. And I'm not going to give too much away, but it was you know, Carmen is at the end of her rope with joy. And she says, you know, I told myself I would not stay in a friendship where I care about your well-being more than you do. Yeah. And I like, I'm hearing that. And my first glimpse was, that's quite harsh. Like that's, it's it's not very supportive, is it Carmen? (laughs) Yeah. But then I thought about it more and I thought about like my, my, my own friendships. And sometimes you do have friends who are just in, they're just a bit, it's not their fault in many ways. They just have blinders on for, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, but for your own sanity, for your own well-being, you have yeah. to at some point give up. So yeah. I was wondering kind of what compelled you to look at it, at the friendship in that way. And, and knowing that I'm sure some audience members will take away my initial reaction, which is, well, it's, it's not very nice and but, <laughs> but not go further than that. Yeah. Well, I think in that, that line, I really was like, well, you know, she's been through therapy now. She is actually working on her issues and has been for a while. And, and, you know, there's that little clip when Dr. Dunley's watching the the videos of their sessions where she's like, I'm feeling really angry. Like she's like been processing how it is. And just, I think there is a question of like, how do you, how can you love someone and be there for them when they're committed to destroying themselves? And how many times can you do it? And is it even always the best thing to do that for them? You know, and then the other side is like loyalty and the power of love and just friendship and accepting people for who they are and where they are. And for me, that was really important because um, in my own experience, um, when I was going through hard times or went through a really bad relationship, I think about how much I changed in that relationship, like how I went from feeling it early, like so confident 
and so fun. And then after, at the end of that relationship was just like, so self-doubting, didn't want to do stuff like totally dead. Like just like the whole early twenties, like, yes, (laughs) we've all been there. We've all been been there. there. Like we didn't know the word love bombing back then, but like (laughs) thought it was the first thing, first one to go through this. But, um, I think of like, particularly my best friend, she just stood by me in this way that I could tell she was just like, like, okay, we're going to talk about it again, or you don't want to go out again, or just like, maybe she took some distance in some ways, but I could, she also just totally stood by me and we're still best friends. And um, she actually helped deliver my baby. (laughs) She wasn't my doctor, but she was there for the labor and I was there for the birth of her first. And like, it's just like those friendships are like the loves of my life. And so I think um, I really wanted to explore to really show that. Yeah. And I think when people are like, oh, female filmmakers, it's like, what can we do differently? I don't know. But I do know friendship with another woman. And this is how I can see it. And it can be complex and you can like get in big fights and cry and make up and have so much fun. And then like, there's just such a freedom, I think, in, in, in friendships that I experience in life. So for me, I think this is going to be a big thing for all my movies is like, I think I'm really inspired by this friendship I have with my, my one best friend. That's amazing. Since we were 10. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciated that because you know, I mean, as we both kind of alluded to, it's so many movies, they just go, oh, the, the two girls are fighting because they both want a boy or right, you know, right. something so frivolous and so silly. And you're just like, it's not what we fight about. And so yeah. it's really it was refreshing to see just not being not necessarily defaulting to always just plain supportive, but also yeah. not defaulting to blindly, you know, being like, oh, that or whatever and like moving exactly, on exactly exactly so, yeah I really appreciated that from the film. oh good I just like loving someone with trauma and going through like that it, you you get burnt mm-hmm. like the trauma does not just affect the person who's been traumatized it's it affects their community absolutely it's very well uh, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a point I generally think about is like the trauma it, the web of it just kind of expands. yeah yeah from one person and it'll just hit everybody within their yeah. circle as well yeah yeah I read in an interview you did I don't know how long ago it was now I wish I had kept it but uh you self-published a book when you were six and it was <laughs> oh called gosh. Coco the rock and roll guinea pig oh my god <laughs> I can't believe you like picked up on that that's the I'm most proud of in my life yeah I thought it was, that was just like the <laughs> most joyous tidbit I've ever found of somebody I'm interviewing. Oh my god, like, I've got to find that. Thing. I'll send you uh like how to scan it and you can I would it. love to see it's it. Not I long, don't worry. It's like pages <laughs> and it's illustrated. I would absolutely yeah. love to see it. But from six years old, you're already yeah. telling stories and yeah. you know however many years later you're doing it still. You know yeah. that this good is luck stopping me. Job. Yeah. So was it something that for you it was what what do you remember being like five and saying I really love storytelling or is it just something that's always been baked within you that you know was it was it something that triggered you or was it just something you just have always loved I love this question so much yes (laughs) I've never been asked that and I'm just something I've loved so much um and my dad who um it was a drummer in a rock and roll band and um he's also Métis and I think that there's just an amazing like there's a lot of good storytellers in our, in our culture. Mm-hmm. And when I think of how he would tell stories and the way he, and like that, my grandfather would tell stories and just like, there's a humor and there's ease, there's pacing. They're way better than I am. But I always was just like making up stories, putting on like 
self plays just or recounting the stories um and then I think when I was like around that age six I learned of a book that I liked and I learned that that author had published the book at his first book when he was nine and I remember having the thought like I have three years it's okay and then I remember turning nine and being like, I didn't do it. And then this, I had so much anxiety for so long. I was like, I haven't got it done. I haven't got it done. I didn't publish a book. And then I actually went to, I got my undergrad in creative writing at U of Vic, but I just found it so isolating. And I think it was also at a time when books were really changing, like, especially with online, like it used to be, you could go to writing school and become like a journalist and know that you were going to have a career. And that was the time where it was like, no one knew what was going to happen with digital yeah. And every they're like, they're like, there will be no jobs. I was like, ah, um, what do you do? But I mostly I just felt my felt like maybe I was too young at that age. I wasn't like the writer who was going to be able to do it at a young age. Um, I just found it really isolating and I wanted to make stuff with people more. And then I did a lot of photography and started doing art and like stuff for like bands and posters and just drawing and then um, I started working when I got out of university for a documentary film company and then started editing and I fell in love with editing because it's so much like writing and then started to see like, okay, film is a place where I don't have to be alone all the time and I can bring in all these things I love, music, sounds, weird art, dance, movement, choreography, just you can put everything in, but it just takes so long to learn how to like actually start to do it and I still feel like I'm just past the beginning like I'm starting to feel I finally can start to do what I envision right but it does take a long time that's an incredible (laughs) story what a journey that you've had literally since you were an anxious (laughs) nine-year-old oh my gosh like I was like I'm gonna yeah I, I think my mom she's a doctor and her side of the family they're very like and not ambitious but they're very like engineers doctors accomplished like, what are you doing? How are you getting it done? And how will you be the best in your field? <laughs> and I was like, then my mom was very supportive. She wasn't pressuring me, but I think I just picked up on like, you've got to get things done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already, I'm about to turn 10 and I don't have it published. The amount of Indigenous creators that have been coming up lately, especially mm-hmm. within Canada, has been amazing. And I've gotten the opportunity to see some really amazing, like Night Riders and uh, or Raiders, sorry, Night Raiders and Slashback recently. I don't know if you. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's really good. I really oh, enjoyed awesome. it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And there's just so much talent. And what kind of what you were saying about your father and your grandfather being able to tell stories. And there's an ease to it. Yeah. Um. So since we can't talk about that other thing, <laughs> um, um, can you talk a little bit of then about like how your Métis heritage has influenced who you are to be as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, and the kinds of stories that you want to tell going forward? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think in terms of the storytelling, I think it's knowing what it feels like to be in the hands of really good storytellers. Mm-hmm. That is one thing. And I think being Métis, I also have the experience of like we're very much aware that like we don't fit anywhere except with ourselves. That's why we're like called like the people who own themselves mm-hmm. because we're like, no one wants us. That's okay. That's okay. We don't mind. No. <laughs> so I think, but I think that perspective, what's really helpful about that, especially in such like a modern time when all cultures and the internet, like everything mixes so much. And so I think to be in that, that point where I think it really helps to see, um, yeah, just humanity, like to not, to not feel like I get to identify with one group that me that has this or that, like that, that sort of like can feel, I think it has felt at times for myself and for 
like Métis people as a whole, there's like, can be a sadness to that. But then what comes out of that is you find the people who are just really awesome and loving you for just who you are and being a person. Like, I think the culture of being Métis is like very open to just like whoever fits in, whoever's kind, whoever is your friend. Like, I don't, I don't think there's as much like, yeah, I just think it, there's like sort of an empathy that comes, comes from that. Yeah. So it's sort of being told you don't fit here. You don't fit there. So where do I fit? Oh, we have our own thing. And like all are welcome a bit more. And that's what the elders that I have in my life, they really, really um, come from that point of view of we're all in the human family. If you don't think like this is your brother or your sister, other people like, then you got to work on that because like creator made us all here to be together. Mm -hmm. And I just love that, um, you know, that approach to, to life and Mm -hmm. um, going forward. I'm definitely interested in, I have a story that I really want to tell about um, an ancestor of mine who she basically, I think she was a Jibwe. I'm not sure I'm finding out. I have like my brothers know more and I, um, but Basically, she was kidnapped by a rival tribe in around like 1820s, like 1810s. Then she was ransomed by my other ancestor, a Frenchman. But he, his family was French from the 1600s, the Garneaux. And my understanding was there was not a lot of like European women here. So I think a lot of people were like actually like Métis or like mixed, but they didn't like say because the Northwest Company, which was the French company, they were allowed to intermarry. Whereas the Hudson's Bay Company, the English, they were not allowed to intermarry. So they, of course, have like country wives and then either sometimes like, but often just abandon them and do like, it's so awful. But so he um, basically ransomed her and then put her in a convent where she could be like, quote unquote, educated for a year. So just to learn French. And then he married her. And I just think like her life is crazy. Yeah, her life is crazy. Like, well, the the change of those times, like the change that was happening around them, it, it's really similar to what we're going through now with the changes in our world. So, I think it's actually like a really modern story. And I just have, I'd really love to make a story about like how the kind of the beginning of that story, and then also that first year in the convent, That's and then ending with her like marrying him, and challenge the idea too that um, that she was a victim. Mm-hmm. because I look at the family that she created and her husband that she created and what they've all gone on to do. It's very impressive. And so I think she, obviously, I sort of want to somehow be able to explore her life in a way that just could be interesting and real and not put her in a box. I suppose it's, it's similar to what we were discussing before about, you know, female friendships. And so it's mm-hmm. nice now, I think, where Indigenous stories are finally being able to be told by indigenous people because it's kind of difficult in some ways, because I think there's a lack of understanding of the culture and the history. And like you were saying, yes. about the Métis people, you know, being welcoming to everybody. Like I've yeah. never heard that before. I've never, you know, I mean, when I went to school, we didn't really learn very much about these things. I think it's a little <laughs> different now, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, or it's not like that. It's in the past, right? It's like, Oh, the native people, did this or did that it's like no like indigenous people are like very much here culture is very much alive it's happening it's not over (laughs) (laughs) I remember you know in school they they taught us like it's such a it's it's a very simplified way of looking at like I to this day and it's it's my own fault because I should do my own research but I remember learning about Métis people in school was they are French and they are native that's it that's it. And, and yeah. So, so there were the Métis and then there were there, there were the other native people. Yeah. And then there was half breeds and those were like normally the Scottish. 
Yeah. And I think that's all interesting, like how that was part of the colonial process and the um, like the rules around that. And just to think like the Celtic people themselves were also like the colonized people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense that they were like and like intermarrying and like the English weren't, but the Scottish were and the Irish were making like half breeds. But then all the different classifications, like it's like there's so many different groups, but like the Métis there's definitely people who are like mixed raced, but the Métis were very much like a certain culture and it was defined very much by um, a way of life, very much following like the Buffalo hunting um, and those sort of ancient trade routes that they um, had and that their ancestors had had because it was also all through the women, like those, the, it was, it was like men, European men wearing indigenous women. Mm-hmm. So those, and those indigenous women often had like, um, like their own matriarchal sort of ties. So they really, the men would kind of come with their families and like sisters. So even in Métis, there's like sister, um, sister towns or sis- places where it's like their families here are all connected by the sisters. Oh. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I mean, was going to say, I could talk to you about this. Right. right? You did. Yeah, I'm still learning so much. And from Maria, the author of, of Half Breed, she, she's a big um, leader for a lot of us in the community who just teaches us a lot about things how things were mm-hmm. and she was taught by like elders who kind of were like hey let's she told the story of how she um had a map and then she put on a clear tablecloth over the table up on this map and then um she was working with an elder who started teaching her all the original names of the places oh, she wow. like, oh that's that's like smith river he's like smith river come on that's called <laughs> this and it means this because every place had a name that came from a story or a, a purpose of that place right the right. one was like the place where they used to like bury all the placentas, like the midwives would mm. bury all the placentas there. So it was like a very special place. And I guess all the most amazing like strawberries would grow there. Certain medicines and like, it's really beautiful. Wow. That's amazing. We're lucky. We're lucky. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. So I, I've gone way over time, but thank you. So much. Right. I, that <laughs> was like fascinating to me. I, I genuinely could talk to you about this for ages. Yeah, but. likewise. I hope I get up with you one time. Maybe uh, absolutely. I probably won't get back to Fantasia next year, but maybe there will be whenever next time you do. Yeah. Uh, oh but God. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Congratulations awesome. with everything. Enjoy the rest of Fantasia. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well. I, I think we had two really solid interviews. I'm really happy with these. I'm so I love getting a chance to talk to emerging directors, new and emerging directors, because they're they're just they're still so excited about the craft and the prospect of sharing their films with audiences and getting to see their reactions. And that's, that's it's basically why we love film. And and you talked about way at the beginning, you know, people maybe being jaded and things like that. And this is sort of the complete opposite in the love and the care and the craft that goes into their work it just really kind of shows through. And they're not exhausted about talking about their movies because it's at the beginning of like the cycle. So it's, it's all very exciting and fresh for them that for the first time they're finally able to like reveal some details and things like that. I always love too when they, when you get the comment from them of just being like, thanks for, thanks for your interest in the movie. Like them thanking us for, for even wanting to interview them, which I always mm-hmm. find really interesting because I guess it, it's like you're an artist. Artists are generally pretty sensitive about their work. So I, I guess the idea that somebody is watching and somebody's going, this is interesting enough that I'd like to speak to you about it um, is quite complimentary for them. So I like, I like that there's a bit of a, a given, a give and take, like we enjoy it, but they enjoy it too. 
Yeah, it's like, no, you guys are doing us the favor. Yeah. <laughs> and we like and we love talking about like movies with movie people and it's even better when you get to talk to someone who is actually making a movie and you know can really divulge some of the secrets of, of what goes on behind the scenes and what their thought process was in making the films. Um so yeah, I I always enjoy it, especially talking to directors actually. I really um I mean, no offense to actors, but I do I do prefer talking to directors sometimes. Me too. Yeah. yeah. You, because also you you don't get the 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 concern of being like, oh, I don't like watching myself on screen, so it's a little tough to kind of talk about my feelings, whereas the director being like, hey, it's just my vision on screen. That's not actually me up there. Yeah, I watched an interview once this was a while ago. I think it was with Alicia Silverstone, funny enough. Like, it was a recent interview, like not an old one from the 90s. Um, but the interviewers kept asking her questions, and she kept being like oh that's a question for the director or like that's more of a question for the writer and it's like yeah "Yeah, because actually like the things that some some journalists are interested in aren't things that necessarily an actor can speak to but then Mm -hmm. there's tons of journalists out there who love talking to actors as well though so yeah maybe it's just because i haven't really done a lot of actor interviews and you know it's one of those things where like people will be like who's your favorite actor i'm like i don't know ask me who my favorite director is i'll be able to list off a dozen for you (laughs) i'd rather say who i'd like a director to cast than maybe who my favorite actor is (laughs) yeah that's true that's a good point you know i feel like that's like um an elevated a graduated stage when you're when you're getting into movies when you're young because i think when you're young you start out with actors like you really really like seeing because they're they're the ones that you see obviously right yes um, but then eventually as, as time goes on and you get even more into movies, then you start wondering who the people are behind the scenes. Like who, who's that name that keeps popping up? Who's this Steven Spielberg character? <laughs> Why does he keep showing up in all of my movies? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. And then though. the next level after that is cinematographers. And then the next level after God. that is the sound designers. And then after that, it's the, it's the gaffers, you know, that's, that's the level <laughs> of fandom, right? That's true. I've recently, like I'd say in the last few years, really gotten into sound design, actually, because <laughs> you don't realize it sometimes it can really make a really big difference. There was a movie I saw at the beginning of this year. I didn't really care for the movie too, too much, but there was one scene. It was kind of like the climax of the movie. And I was obsessed with this this one particular scene. And it was just because of the sound design, which made me feel very, very filmy, very film oh, snobby. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I know. I felt proud of myself. Well, uh, I think that sort of wraps up our our show today. I reviewed Polaris. You reviewed Polaris. Did you also write a review for Dark Nature? I didn't, no. But um, we'll point you to Sarah's um, review because it's actually quite good. Yeah, so I'll I'll link uh, in the show notes our our Polaris reviews and Sarah's review for Dark Nature as well. Uh, And be on the lookout. Our next episode is going to be our full wrap-out where we're going to talk about the best movies that we saw and how excited we were for everything and what movies that everyone else should be on the lookout for. Because it is sometimes a little frustrating where you watch something at a festival and then it doesn't come out for like six months or maybe even up to a year later and you're just like, oh yeah, I I saw that a year ago. Yeah, you should check it out sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things with film. And like so many movies, they don't get a release either, right? Like there's going to be time. Um, but in in a, in a way, like Shudder, um, which is the horror streaming service, like very, sp- I mean, I think they only do horror, actually. I think that's what Shudder does. Yeah, yeah, horror um, and horror adjacent. Yeah, so like, but there, if you're into horror, you obviously know about Shudder, but if you don't, definitely grab a sub because they, they picked up a lot of um, 
I know from from Sundance. I don't know about it, but I know in Sundance they picked up like a number of horror movies that might not have like smaller ones, like mid-sized smaller films that might not have received any theatrical otherwise or any distribution if 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 streaming didn't exist. So yeah, it's kind of it's nice though when every now and then you can see a movie. But you're right; sometimes it takes a long time for them to mm-hmm. to come it's out. Really funny with with Shutter, where getting emails from the different publicists of being like, "Oh, these are the films that we have playing at uh, Fantasia," and then like two or three days later, be like, "Make sure you check out this movie at Fantasia before it drops on Shutter on this date." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, especially uh, uh, Kayla Heyer, who uh, their their films at. Uh, their, her company represents really often end up on Shutter too, so it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, she was actually the one um, is Exile PR. They're the ones who set up the interview with Berkeley. So thank you, thank you. There Kayla. we go. Thank you very much. All right, awesome. Well, uh, that's today's show. Like I said, I'm going to link to the reviews in the show notes. Uh, Rachel, where can listeners find more of your work? Go to rachelkh.com and on Twitter at underscore rachelkh. Excellent. And you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you saw either Polaris or Dark Nature, let us know your thoughts on those movies and our interviews. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.